Parenting is hard, but there's help. Welcome to Everyday Parenting with Mary Beth Henry, a licensed marriage and family therapist and parent educator. Today's episode will be a little different. Mary Beth will be tackling a couple sleep issues. First, she's going to talk about nighttime anxiety, and next, she'll be taking a question from our Facebook group about how to manage sleep for a six-week-old. Speech, language, and communication play a vital role in our lives. Without it, children have difficulty communicating their basic needs and can struggle academically or with peers. At Jabberdogs, speech-language pathologist Stephanie Mashik can help you or your loved one become a successful communicator. Based in Pasadena, California, Jabberdogs offers private speech and language therapy at affordable rates. They also take insurance, including Blue Shield and Anthem Blue Cross of California. Visit Jabberdogs.com for more information. That's J-A-B-B-E-R-D-O-G-S dot com. I wanted to talk a little bit about nighttime separation and how this has really become a very common topic that I've been handling a lot with a lot of families. And what it looks like is children waking up in the middle of the evening, middle of the night, 2.30, 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and not quite able to put themselves back to sleep and might be crying, might be screaming going on, inconsolable. And the way it's handled with a lot of families is something I really want to talk about because there are several things to be looking at. What we have to realize with children with nighttime separation and anxiety is that it is a real struggle. It's a real struggle for these children. It's something that is cyclic and it goes into a time where we have to realize that when children are, are struggling with this is that there is a real fear and their brains really are not mature enough to really handle the distressing emotions that are involved here. So what I like to tell parents to really focus during this time is to realize that, I said this before too, is that the nighttime issues are usually daytime issues. So if you notice that your child's having a lot of changes, having a difficult time with transitions, having a difficult time with separation or just very clingy behaviors during the day, that's just a direct correlation. You're going to see a lot of those same behaviors at night. What we do is we're going to take it and, and work on some steps that we can do to alleviate during the daytime as well as the nighttime, but really focusing on daytime is giving the children the tools to know what to do in the middle of the night. So the first thing we're going to focus on during the day and when they wake up at night, but is really during the day, you really hear them, validate their feelings, talk to them about that it's okay to be nervous in the middle of the night. It happens. Everything will turn out fine. We just need to figure out what's going on and ask them that question. When you wake up in the middle of the night, when you wake up at two in the morning and you're crying, what could we do for you? What would be helpful? They might be able to tell you, I I need to be hugged or I feel like I need to go to the bathroom and I can't, they're scared to walk to the bathroom or they'll say, I don't know. And then that's okay. We just need to validate feelings at that point. So a lot of that during the day, a lot of discussion about it. And then the second thing we're going to focus on is how to self-soothe. A lot of times we have to remember when children wake up in the middle of the night, they're not able to put themselves back down to sleep. We might have to go back and do a little teaching about relaxation, especially during the day when we're upset, when we're frustrated. How can we teach our children how to relax and not just solve the problems for them or try to figure it out, but just say, let's do our deep breathing and let's relax. Let's calm down and let me help you with that. Let me help you figure out how to calm down and we'll figure this out together. Once they're calmed down, then have that discussion of what the crisis is, what the problem is, and help them through that. But during the day, 
if we are constantly not helping them learn how to calm down, we can't expect them in the middle of the night to have that ability. So it's a practice skill. It's something we have to teach children how to do is how to relax, how to calm down, how to self-soothe. So in the middle of the night, when we are frightened, when we are scared, when we are overwhelmed, we can know what to do or your children will know what to do. And if they don't know what to do, then you're going to continue to help them and teach them and maybe pull them out of their bed, help them relax and help them figure out how to manage that. The next piece is number three is really encouraging children to have a lovey, a blanket, an animal, a doll, something that's very comforting for them. But also it's the whole reverse piece of this doll can be your protector. or This animal can be your protector. If you're feeling scared, it could be someone you could hold on to. Or the alternative is that you're going to be the child's protector over the stuffed animal. And I know it sounds like a very confusing statement to say that, but some children need that power to feel like they are strong enough to protect. They are strong enough to know what to do. And this just gives them that feeling. So a lovey or a blankie at night, but also practice that during the day. When your child is having a hard time during the day, encourage them to remember how to relax and also to find their lovey, find their blankie, find that place to calm down and relax. The next piece is providing light. High anxiety children do need to have some form of light that they can see the space that they're in when they wake up. We want to avoid any blue or green lights, but we really want to focus on the really soft white lights. The other colored lights that we might have that might shine and give all these different colors and all that really do decrease the production of melatonin in a child. And so the soft white light is provides more of a melatonin boost. I also really encourage families who have high anxiety children at night to use this old school item that is still around today. It's called the glow worm or the glow seahorse they have now, but it's a little a soft stuffed creature that you can squeeze. And as they squeeze it, the head lights up or the belly might light up and give just enough light to ease that child and to take a little bit of that anxiety away. The next piece that we have to really practice on during the day and during the night is really being real clear on the predictability of a schedule for children and also always saying goodnight or goodbye to our children. So goodbye during the day, if you're leaving them, if you're going someplace, not sneaking out, you know, really letting them know that you are leaving and the same thing at night. We want to have them go be in their bed and you want to be able to say goodnight to them when they're awake. You don't want to put a child in bed asleep um, on a regular basis. They need to learn that process of self-soothing and using all these tools that we're talking about, all these different steps. And the whole idea of saying goodbye to a child and having that reliability and that predictability is something that's very, very important for building that trust. And so if during this time of saying goodnight, we might need to help children with that sleep training, which we've talked about, the 10-minute intervals or the staying in their room and really teaching children that we're still here. You can trust that I'll be here on, on regular intervals. I'm going to be out in the other room brushing my teeth, and I'll come back and check on you every 10 minutes. And that's something we've talked about before is that sleep training. And then number six is a safe place to sleep. And what we have to realize with co-sleeping or with children sleeping in their own room and whatever you choose to do with your children, all these pieces can be used with co-sleeping and or in your own bed. But we have to realize too, as children who do sleep in their own bed or in their own room, when they have bad dreams or a difficult time with sleeping, 
we want to make sure that we keep them in that room or keep them in that bed as much as possible to make sure that we are telling our children that their room is safe, their room is a good place to be. But if just perpetuate for quite a while and the child really is having a difficult time um, in their bed or there is a sibling that's in that room and you're feeling like the screaming child might wake up the other one. I do really like to use this concept called the nest. I call it the nest. It's a safe place, a place where a child can go and it could be in your room by your side of your bed or at the end of your bed where a mat, a sleeping bag, or some comfortable place where a child can go. If they are in a bed and they can walk, it would be a place they could come to you, to your room in the middle of the night when they are having a difficult time in hopes that they would not wake you up, that they would just find a safe, this safe place to come. Um, if the child's in a crib, it might be a place that you could pull them out after you've tried some techniques of calming them down. And if they just can't calm, then you would bring them into the nest and say you can sleep here for the rest of the night and then after a couple of weeks or a month, you would wean them and bring them back into their room. And hopefully that would be how the nest is used. We have to remember with all these phases and all these stages, these steps that we're doing, that this is just as a phase in a, in a child's life and this too shall pass. But the last two pieces are very important too. It's establishing that routine. As we talked about routines, how important, predictable. So having that chart of everything that the child needs to do before they go to bed, so all those things get taken care of. And the last one is just be patient. I know it's not just, but we need to be patient. It's important not to direct anger or irritation at our children when they do wake up. If your child feels rejected by you being overly grumpy or overly tired or being very emotional or very, if you yell at your child, or just get very frustrated, which we all do, this does happen. But what we want to try to not to do is do it on a regular basis when they wake up because that just deepens that separation anxiety and it really the child does feel very rejected. It makes the whole separation much worse. So as parents, we need to model too that behavior of relaxing, deep breathing. I'm here to help you. Let's figure this out. If bedtime struggles persist for a period of time and they really do start affecting the daily life of the child. So if the anxiety is affecting the school and the playtime, what we want to do is if this is a continual piece, we really do want to talk to your pediatrician and see if any other notice, any other physical symptoms that might be coming up. The anticipation of separation, the stomach aches, the headaches, the dizziness. Those are very important things also to focus on. But I hope this helps and I hope this gives you some insight to helping to understand sleep anxiety and sleep challenges during the night. Do you find that the sleep anxiety is less common in a room if the siblings are sharing a room? No, not always. It really depends on the ages of the children. So if a child, let's say a two-year-old, usually has a lot more sleep anxiety because they are actually, they've been weaned, um, they're starting this new independence. So it really depends more on the age of the children versus the location of the children. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it could be that you might have a five and a seven-year-old in the same room and, um, you know, one of the children might be, you know, which children continually go through this nighttime anxiety. So it all depends developmentally of what they're dealing and what they're handling at school or at home. And 
So it's not so much having two in the room, it's just with what the child is going through and how the child manages those behaviors. What is the age range where this is considered typical behavior and when is it something to be a little more worried about in terms of long-term anxiety issues? You have to realize with children, you know, as, they, as they grow and develop, they always go through the same reoccurrence of patterns of these developmental milestones. So, um, you know, uh, 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 the four-month-old, the eight-month-old, eight to ten-month-old, you know, they're going through the same pieces. And as we get head into the, you know, the eighteen-month-old and then the two-year-old, I mean, they're all, they just cycle through this, this, um, this, these patterns. And so, when it, well, I always like to focus on, you know, any time after you have a two and above and you start seeing these patterns where it really is affecting, it's not so much age as it is, or is it staying for more than a month? And after that month, is it so apparent? I mean, not just the nighttime, but it's also during the daytime that we start seeing the avoidance of not wanting to do the typical activities like going to school or going to daycare or going to grandma's house. And we start seeing the, the stomach aches or the headaches or lack of appetite or the constipation issues and the holding issues. And so age really isn't the issue. It's really looking at the behavior and how those symptoms are playing out um, in a child's life and how long they are staying around for the child. So with the nest, we're encouraging them to come into the nest and not tell us. That would be the idea. What we want to encourage is not giving that child any energy, any kind of extra attention so learning how to take care of themselves is our goal. So the preference is for them to stay in their own bed, right? And to try to figure this out. But if they can't and they feel so overwhelmed, the nest provides that space where they can wander out, go into your space and find this little place that's already preset and they know about it, where they can crawl in there and hopefully not wake you up and disturb the entire family. And that's where you have to teach your child how important it is for parents to have their sleep and every time you wake us up, we're grumpy, we're tired. And, but the nest does provide that outlet for children. And what it really does in the long term is it gives that child that confidence to say, I can take care of myself and I know how to take care of myself and I just need this extra help right now. I need to have a place that I can go, that I feel safe and I'm really gonna learn how to take care of myself. And that's what the whole nest is about, is providing that safe place which, like I said, we want to encourage their bed to be that safe place, but sometimes they're overwhelmed and they need that connection to be in your space. So to get into the weeds, kind of the logistics of the nest, let's say your kid is too scared to... Venture into the nest, yeah, yeah. And oh, even get to the nest. If you have created the nest and you really want to use that as a way of managing it, and I want to clarify... I really do like to use it for older preschool and above. I'm not using this for infants and toddlers and, you know, children who are learning at a walk, but I'm using this for two and above, three and above, depending on your child. But if they can't get to it, you can actually escort them and help them get to it. Then you have to be awake in some kind of a state, but you're not having the tantrums and the meltdowns and the screaming and the inconsolable. It would be, you know what, I will help you get to the nest. Let's get you settled in there and you crawl back into bed. And that still is a positive experience in the sense that you're allowing the child to be in a safe place, but you're also setting that boundary that I'm not going to be holding you, touching you for any amount of time and that I still want my sleep to. Okay, so let's say 
the kid can make it to the nest without being too scared, but you're a parent who doesn't do well with being woken up and getting back to sleep again. How do you train your kid to come in and not tell you? It actually, I have many, many families that do this, and the children learn how to do this. It really is quite astounding. The children learn to respect that this is a place that I can come, and they actually do it. Yes, once in a while they might wake up the parent, but a majority of them actually do really well with this, and they come right in, and sometimes the parents have no idea. They wake up at the, in, in the morning like, oh my gosh, the child's in here. We never heard, of, we never heard them. So it, you'd be surprised on giving this child this psychological edge, this piece that says, we know you need this extra help right now, and we're going to allow you to have it. And the, the ultimate goal here is for that child to realize that, you know, I think I might just want to stay. I don't think I need the nest tonight. I think I just want to stay in my nice warm bed, and I can manage this. I can do it in the nest. I can do it here too. So that's kind of our ultimate goal is to give them a place to come. They may need it. They may not. And if they do need it, they know it's there, and they have that choice. Happy sleeping. For this question that came from our Everyday Parenting Facebook group, I am a new mom with a six-week-old baby boy, and I have been loving listening to your podcast during my middle-of-the-night feedings. My question is related to sleep. My son will only fall asleep on myself or my husband, and sometimes I can then move him to his rocker, while other times this results in him waking up again within 15 minutes. Anytime I place him on a flat surface, the bassinet, he quickly becomes unsettled and wakes up due to reflux. My question is, how normal are these issues at this age? And am I doing him a disservice by not doing more to teach self-soothing now instead of letting him sleep on us each time? It is exhausting for hubby and me too, as we are having to take turns and never sleeping at the same time as each other. As a caveat, this was submitted on March 26th and it is now May. All right, new mama, hang in there. Sleep for the first four months. You know, you're, you're heading into that four-month cycle soon, you know, but you're also dealing with acid reflux, and that's a huge, huge piece to take into consideration, that you will start seeing that settle down as his body begins to mature and rebalance itself a little bit with that. But yes, the vertical holding is really an important piece, but some things that you can do to help with this is during the day when he is not completely exhausted you know at the end of the day trying to put him to sleep but during the day when he is more well rested and a little happier is to start helping him find self-soothing techniques for example does he like to put his hand in his mouth does he like a pacifier does he like certain fabrics a lovey um, something that you can always give him when he is crying or when he is fussy Give him these items. Give him. Find out what his sensory desires are. Um, it does he um, like I just said? Is it touch? Is it taste? Is it mouth? Is it those types of things? And as you're cuddling and holding him, or if he is just playing nicely in a bouncy chair where he's a little more upright, give him those loveys or those things that he does enjoy that he can practice with. For, for example, children have to practice using a pacifier during the waking hours, so when they are stressed and needed at night they'll know how to put it into their mouth eventually. So those are the things that you can do. And sucking really will, majority of the time, really will help soothe the, the reflux of a child. 
Um, I also want you to really pay attention to what is causing the reflux and really work work with your pediatrician. Uh, maybe if you need to work with it with a dietitian to see if your diet is uh, maybe causing some reaction for your child, really uh, really take that uh, to heart and and uh, focus on that also to see if there is a dietary issue that can be um, looked at to help your child also. Um, in the crib, um, as he's sleeping in a crib um, versus a bassinet, um, would the the crib is going to give you a little more option of uh, making the mattress slant. So you would raise the mattress up a notch or two notches at on one end. So the mattress is a little bit more of a slant and you would put his head up at the, the, the upper um, raised area of the crib. And um, maybe um, you can make the crib seem smaller by rolling up a blanket and putting it under the, the, um, putting it under the sheet to cause the crib to be um, a little bit smaller so it's not a full-size crib if, if he looks a little bit big in that crib. Um, that would give him a safe place and a confined place and not be moving too much and sliding down. Um, but that angle really does help to um, give that same feeling than when you're holding him. Um, so uh, try soothing him in the crib. Put him to, in the crib awake and uh, soothe him at that angle with an angle um, in that space so he doesn't um, feel like he has to be on you uh, to feel uh, soothed, but you can stay with him and soothe him by, um, you know, patting his bottom or patting his feet, uh, maybe putting him on his side um, and lodging him on the side a bit, um, not a full side, but just a little bit angle on the side and rubbing his back or rubbing his bottom really does help to, to, um, to help with that, um, the really uncomfortable feeling of the burning in his esophagus. So um, four months is going to be a, a key time for you to work with him on sleep habits and sleep um, sleep training, sleep habits and sleep training. So, um, but by four months, what we also want to do is, uh, when you do your check-in with a pediatrician at that point to make sure that his body weight has, he has gained a significant amount of weight by four months before you start sleep training. Um, weight is a big factor. Um, I believe in a child sleeping through the night and really making it, um, through some sleep cycles. And, um, with his, uh, reflux, he might not have gained, the weight that um, you would want him to have. So keep an eye on that and, uh, and I wish you all the best and hang in there. It, it does get better. This is a, a very difficult time. And I, and parents that are hearing this today are, are we, we can, we can really support you through and understand what you're going through because it is a very difficult time. So hang in there. So do you, do you endorse you know, trying to train, not train, well, trying to, to teach them to self-soothe? Or are you, if a parent just says, well, I just want to hold them all the time and and then we'll figure it out from there and we'll co-sleep through college. <laughs> There's a lot mixed in there together. So let's, let's talk about it. So co-sleeping, I, I, co-sleeping is a beautiful thing. Um, co-sleeping is, is also 
um, been misconstrued, I think, in a lot of times in our culture, because we think co-sleeping a child uh, doesn't have to learn self-soothing. We think co-sleeping a child can just be lashed onto your breast all night long or the bottle all night long, and that's not true. Co-sleeping in every other culture in the world is the child still crawls into a, a place to sleep and the parent might be there for a brief moment of time, but the parent might also be off working in the house, doing things around the, the area in that, in that space, but the child learns how to self-soothe and put themselves to sleep. So I think that's a one piece we always have to teach our children. Self-soothing is a very important piece for self-regulation, and self-regulation is a very important thing for waking, waking hours and for uh, nighttime hours. So I am a believer in always teaching children self-soothing techniques and not being dependent on the world around them to soothe them, but to be able to soothe themselves. So that's finding what is it that helps calm them down. When a child is crying or upset, putting a bottle or a breast onto that child's mouth to help them self-soothe is actually in the long term not really helping them. And I'm talking from four months on. It's not really helping them to learn how to begin that process of I can take care of my body, I know my body, and I can find the best ways to take care of myself. And I'm not saying that a five-month-old, a six-month-old should be self-dependent, but I'm saying that self-soothing is a very, very important part in our development as human human beings because self-soothing is a self-regulatory behavior, and we have to learn to self-regulate ourselves and know that we can do that and that comes from a lot of coaching and a lot of parental help and allowing our children to work through that everyday parenting is produced by me Teresa wing the music you hear on our podcast is courtesy of Stephen morell if you have a question for mary beth and the everyday parenting podcast community please join us on our facebook group just search for everyday parenting group on facebook Also, sponsors are always welcome. Just email us at parentingpodcast at gmail.com. Don't miss our next episode. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to take the time out to find us and rate us on iTunes.